Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Chasing Shadows, the Samantha Knight story. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Born under the name Samantha Teresa Meager on March 25, 1977, the girl who would become Samantha Therese Knight seemed destined for an ordinary life in Manly, living with her parents Tess Knight and Peter O'Meager, but ordinary was never in the cards for her. The ink was barely dry on her parents' divorce papers when she and her mother packed up and jetted to Bronte, a suburb of Sydney. By 1986, they found themselves in the labyrinth of apartments on Imperial Avenue, in Bondi, less than a mile from the beaches of New South Wales, Australia. It is one of the most tourist-visited destinations in Australia and a beautiful beachside community. On August 19th of that year, she would have been experiencing an ordinary Tuesday for a nine-year-old. Samantha Knight left for school and returned home to her apartment at about 4.15 p.m. Later, when her mother returned from work and could not find Samantha, she reported her missing. She knew immediately when she was not where she was supposed to be, that something was terribly wrong. She would later say that it was as if Samantha had simply vanished into thin air. As her disappearance began to spread like wildfire around the community, witnesses would come forward stating that they had seen her between 4.30 p.m. and 6.45 p.m. in the vicinity of Bondi Road and between Imperial Avenue and Wellington Street. Tess saw a half-eaten snack in the kitchen on the bench when she returned home from work and spoke to anyone that they knew, having only lived there for just a few months. It would be confirmed that Samantha had come home from school, changed into a navy blue tracksuit top, a pink skirt, and blue sandals, leaving the apartments to visit the local shops for pencils, where tourists were beaming with activities they had been having. Despite a relentless statewide crusade that wallpapered New South Wales with her face, she became a haunting enigma, never to be seen again, and one of Australia's most high-profile cases. We would later learn that a lifelong pedophile and monster, Michael Anthony Guider, had taken Samantha sometime after returning from school, and he had given her a stupefying drug, something that would have made her compliant and easily controlled. We would learn from Guider that the drug he had administered was Normacin, or Temazepam. Guider's modus operandi was to administer the drug in drinks children weren't typically allowed by their parents, such as Coca-Cola, and then assault and photograph his victims. He would later admit to administering too much of the drug for Samantha's height and weight, 
which ended in her death. He would eventually dispose of her like rubbish and later claim to not remember where he had left her body. What's interesting about this is, first of all, when we're talking about the time frame of when this occurred, I know that probably a lot of people are thinking that at the age of nine, how in the world did she come home from school and leave? Be, even be allowed, like if that was like a thing. And it was back then. You know, typically you trusted the people around you. And at the time, her mom had said that typically it was normal for her, even though they had only lived there for a short period of time, that she would go like, to the neighbors or something to get a friend and they would play or whatever. So it wasn't abnormal for her to come home and then head out to play or whatever that was. Yeah. So it's also important to know that this is in the seventies and the eighties when kids still played outside and they drank from the water hose and they played on all the dangerous playground equipment that we had out in playgrounds. And this is not when it was super safe to be a kid. Yeah. And so her mom, you know, a, a single parent, and I really have to give it to single parents because it's really difficult when it's just you and your kids or you and your kid. And so she didn't have any brothers and sisters who were at home with her to see where she went or what she was doing or anything of that nature, or even to accompany her at this point in time. So here she is a single child. Her mom is at work. She comes home and it just, she's just kind of business as usual for her as a, as a child. So she had gone to, you know, the little local shops looking for pencils and never to be seen again. So the last time her mom actually saw her was that morning when she left for school. Michael Anthony Guider is a vile and despicable human. Born October 20th, 1950, a Libra in Melbourne, Victoria, in Australia. Guider would have been 46 years old in 1996 when he was imprisoned on more than 60 charges of child sexual abuse against 11 children, nine girls, and two boys. In 2002, he would receive an additional sentence for manslaughter for the death of Samantha Knight. He would claim the death to be accidental, resulting in a conviction of manslaughter instead of murder. Born amidst the urban sprawl of Melbourne, Victoria, Michael Guider was a man whose life story read like a dark, twisted screenplay. With his mother fleeing to Sydney in 1952, young Michael found himself in a tumultuous household, overshadowed by an alcoholic army cook and a mother diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. A baby brother, Timothy Tim Paul Guider, joined this chaotic picture in 1953. In 1963, at ages 12 and 9, both boys were soon remanded to the Melrose Boys' home an ominous overshadowing of their mother's unraveling grip on reality. There, Guider would later confess to prison psychologists the cycle of abuse began, first at the hands of his own mother, and later, chillingly, within the walls of the boys' home. Tim would also recall the abuse in the boys' home with stories of boys being taken from the home by a white-haired Englishman with a cane and a pencil-thin beard. Two at a time. First sightseeing, then a hotel, being drugged with glasses of milk, and then sexually abused. Michael would have been one of the first victims, but would not tell anyone of the occurrences. He would later commit the same atrocities on other boys and girls. The parents of Michael Guider and Tim Guider would never come back to get them. Fast forward to the 1970s and Guider seemed to have come into his own, if only on the surface. Hit with various charges in 1977 at the age of 28, after torching a shop where his former lover's new boyfriend was employed, 
His life was anything but mundane. By day, he toiled as a gardener at the Royal North Shore Hospital, but it was his unquenchable thirst for Aboriginal culture that cast him in a more intriguing light. In Sydney's arcane cultural pockets, Guider gained a reputation as an amateur authority on the subject. His insights were so sought after that they even found their way into the pages of a published book, and he was even on television. But like a glossy veneer over rotting wood, this respectability concealed a darkness within a secret life that would soon unravel in the most shocking way. In December 1995, the facade of Michael Guider finally shattered when he was arrested for molesting two young girls, both just six and seven years old. One brave little girl, just six, broke her silence, telling her mother, who courageously marched to the police. By 1996, the veil was fully lifted, revealing the monster behind the man. During raids of his property on February 2nd and 6th of 1996, law enforcement agencies noted thousands of 35mm slides, photographs, and negatives depicting young children in indecent poses and in the course of being sexually assaulted. Pornographic books, children's underwear, cameras, various texts in relation to child abuse, child photography, and incest were also found. Guider, who was 45 at the time, admits the allegations made by the girls and says he's got a problem dealing with children, obsessions with photographing them and collecting underwear. After his arrest on February 28, 1996, given all of the evidence found, Operation Jadeite ensues to search for any additional survivors and victims. Police question Guider about missing nine-year-old Samantha Therese Knight. He lies and says he had only met her once or twice, though Tess, Samantha's mom, would later admit that they had met him at a birthday party in February of 1983. He did, however, admit to having some scrapbooks about missing persons, including her and the Beaumont children, but had thrown them out. He would attribute their abduction to aliens and white slave traders. Guider was slammed with a staggering 15-year sentence on a rap sheet that included no fewer than 60 charges involving 11 innocent children. His twisted M.O.? He'd pose as a babysitter for women he knew, typically single. He would drug their children and proceed to molest and photograph them in their vulnerable, unconscious state. One of his strategies was to play a game with the children called Statue, where they would stand still and he would expose himself to the children and touch their genitalia. The mother of two of Guider's victims, a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, spoke of Guider's manipulative methods. She tells of how he got close to families using empathy and building trust and relationships with the children through gameplay and gifts. He would take pictures of the children. He always had a camera, Kristen Cargill said of Guider, who she met while working at a crisis center where he served as a counselor. As the girls got older, he started dropping by while she was at work to see the girls and on one occasion put a padlock on the inside of the oldest girl's door. When questioned, he said the child requested it to keep her younger sister out of her room. Christina asked him to stay away from her and the girls. She had grown not to trust him. In 1998, Strike Force Harrisville was comprised of agencies whose mission consisted of further investigating and they soon discovered that Guider had a storage unit rented in his name in Gurrawin. And to their surprise, the scrapbooks he had referred to in earlier interviews detailing Samantha's disappearance along with more photos, negatives, and disturbingly even more survivors. Two more girls, ages 5 and 8, were identified bringing the total known survivor count to 13. For this, he received an additional sentence in 2000 for further vile acts against two young girls, totaling eight counts, five for sexual intercourse. Sequestered in the bowels of Goldburn Prison, even the strictest protective measures couldn't shield him from the brutal justice meted out by his fellow inmates. On two separate occasions, he was viciously beaten, sustaining fractures to his legs and hands, abrasions all over, and one ear almost entirely torn off. 
When 2014 rolled around, Guider found himself eligible for parole on June 7th, but society wasn't ready to let this predator walk free. His request was denied, effectively shackling him for another approximate five years yet. The chilling question remains, can the cage truly contain the darkness that lives within a man like Michael Guider? Yeah, this is tough. You know, what really sticks out to me about this and just in hearing this is a few things for anybody that's been following us in a lot of our recent episodes, you know that we have been closely covering the case out of Henrietta, Oklahoma with Jesse Lee McFadden. And something that's really striking to me in this story is that Guider is so much like McFadden and it's almost like looking at McFadden prior to the internet. Yeah. So here this guy has all of these photos that law enforcement finds. And oh, by the way, guys, they see it as evidence. But in McFadden's case, he has gobs and gobs and gobs of internet material, of material that he's put online or that he has online. You look at this and you see how... The predator has changed over the years because now Guider would have access to the worldwide internet. He doesn't need to have negatives and an expensive camera around his neck. He just has to have a cell phone that takes photos. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Starting off from when he was young, he was also sexually abused. And we talked about this in other episodes where we talk about individuals who have been sexually abused. And we have often said, even in the case that you just referenced with Jesse McFadden, that he had been molested as a child. We we learned that Michael Guider has also been molested as a child as well. And the method of how he was sexually abused is what he promotes, you know, forward into the future. So that abuse created an abuser. It doesn't always, right? right? It doesn't always every time. But in this example, we can see the correlation between being abused and then becoming an abuser and then using that same mechanism of how he was abused to abuse other children. Right. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that I feel like people should definitely be more invested in what we do with sex offenders, because when a child is violated, they don't get parole in 10 years, 15 years they deal with that for their entire lives. And we spoke with one of Guider's victims. And when you hear her story, which will be after this episode, it's just ridiculous what someone has to go through from being abused as a child at six years old to being a mother now. And they don't get parole so why would you give them the opportunity to create a monster? Why would you give them an opportunity to have another survivor or victims? Because generally their crimes get more intricate and they get worse. They progress. They also get better at covering up too. Absolutely. And you know, there's a lot of research out there, and I know that we've spoken about this before, but there's a lot of research out there that talks about the number of sexual predators who whose crimes are never even discovered. And if you think about just the cases that we do know of, it's sad to think of all the cases that we don't. Yeah. 
And the worse that we are at holding these guys and girls accountable, the higher the likelihood that we're going to have that. The better that we are, the lower the likelihood that we will have that occur. Now, it looks like Gerda was starting to get in the 1970s, you know, as he was coming into his 20s, he started getting his life a little bit together, it seemed like. I don't know if he was already offending at that point or if that was something that came later in his life, but it seemed like he was becoming this expert in Aboriginal culture. He was making good connections. He was on TV. Like he had good things going for him. I've heard different instances of where he's working with methadone clinics and he's working as a counselor at a crisis center. And it looks like he was gravitating to, towards those areas where he could find easy victims in single parents. Yes. I think for a predator, it's all about positioning themselves for their prey. You put yourself in a methadone clinic and something tells me that's where he got the drugs to put in these girls' drinks and boys' drinks because he also assaulted boys as well. There was at least two boys that were identified in the case against him in his original case. But I think he was positioning himself in a way to be a better predator. Right. It wasn't about being a good person or anything of that nature. It was about putting himself in a position to be the best predator he possibly could. Right. One brave little girl in 1995 would refuse to remain silent would refuse to bottle up what had happened and refused to hold that secret. And she told her mother what had happened. And that brave little girl and her mother marched down to the police station. And that began the process of, of tearing down this guy who had been abusing for probably 30 plus years. Yeah. And one of the things that she had told us is that prior to her, that there was other victims and they know that because obviously in the photographs and these photographs guys are not just little girls in various stages of undress. He had photographs of the sexual abuse that he was doing to these girls. So he was photographing that. And because of the drug that he was giving the little girls, a lot of them weren't remembering bits and pieces of what was happening. I mean, he was doing this on purpose. So there would be bits and pieces that they would, you know, remember later or, you know, that were kind of hazy for them. He was basically knocking them out, you know, to the best of his ability, keeping them alive enough. It's just disturbing. We do have an interview with one of Guider's survivors. Actually, we have an interview with the brave little girl, <laughs> the brave little girl who um, refused to remain silent. So it's an emotional story. And I think that it really shows the strength of, of our kids, but it also shows us the impact that a dangerous predator and a monster can have on the future of those children that they attack and they abuse. Michael Geider, already a dark figure in the penal system, began to attract the unrelenting gaze of investigators probing the enigmatic disappearance of Samantha Knight. Denise Hoffman, who would later co-author Forever Nine with John Kidman, had crossed paths with Geider in the past while they worked on Aboriginal sites around Sydney. The tension escalated when freelance journalist D. Michelle confided in Hoffman about Guider's unsettling, obsessive remarks about Knight. D. Michelle unwilling to turn in someone she considered a friend. That left Hoffman with a moral imperative. She had to be the one to alert the authorities. Armed with this nerve-wracking 
intel, she approached a detective at Castle Hill Police Station. When questioned, Guider initially downplayed his relationship with Knight, claiming they had only met sporadically. But as the web of lies unraveled, the horrifying truth surfaced. Guider had molested Knight and two other girls in a manly house during 1984 and 1985. On February 22, 2001, the reckoning arrived. Guider was charged with Knight's murder. Eventually, on June 7, 2001, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter, not murder. He rationalized his actions, claiming he had accidentally overdosed Knight with drugs, the same loathsome method he had used on his previous victims. On August 28, 2002, the gavel slammed down, sentencing Guider to an additional 17 years in prison for manslaughter to run consecutively with his existing sentence for child sex offenses. Yet, in a chilling coda to this gruesome tale, Samantha Knight's body remains undiscovered. Guider, unrepentant to the end, claimed amnesia about her final resting place, leaving an aching void for those who continued to seek justice and closure in this sordid saga. Guider would take authorities on a wild goose chase from one potential location to another, but Samantha's body would remain lost forever. Samantha Knight's body has never been found. In August 1986, the nine-year-old disappeared without a trace from a Bondi street. Her killer, Michael Guider, admitted in 2002 he gave the young girl an overdose of a sleeping drug. A judge sentenced Guider to 17 years in jail for Samantha's manslaughter. At the time, he was already serving a 16-year sentence in relation to dozens of other child sex offences. What we start to find out is that this wasn't the first time he had sexually abused Samantha. He had sexually abused her previously when Samantha lived in, in Manly before her mom moved her to Bondi. And one of the things, and I heard this throughout listening to the little girl's story that you'll hear, and also in some of the interviews of Samantha Knight's mom speaking about Samantha and the case surrounding her disappearance and her death. And one of the things that her mom talked about that she had to do that was so hard was, but that she was willing to do it because she wanted to find her daughter was she had to go through all of the photos to identify her daughter and to try to piece together things that she might recognize to try to assist in finding her daughter. What a horrific thing to go through. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing, too, is that some of these kids had to sit there and look at the photos as well. And what's really, truly interesting to me, because we've spoken to a number of survivors, and what's truly remarkable, and that I think a lot of people don't realize, is that that mentality is the same. So the same thing that the now adult looks back on, when she was groomed at 16 or the, you know, rape survivor who looks back where she was violently raped at a young age, they all have a sense of some type of what did I do or a sense of being ashamed. And that six-year-old little girl had those exact same thoughts. Right. And not one of them was responsible for what happened to them in any way, shape, or form. 
And I think that was part of Guider's superpower was in making them feel like they had done something because he's super fun and and cool and kind of clownish and like he really like brings them gifts and lets them drink coke when they're not supposed to be drinking it <laughs> like he's this really cool adult who's showing them attention and they're responding to that in a positive way where he's like a really good guy but then he's this monster he admits to meeting her in the past and we later find out that he had sexually assaulted her twice in the past before he ends up killing her when we interviewed the survivor one of the things that she talked about was that the drug would wear off over time. The drug that he was using wasn't a constant drug. It didn't keep them under until he was done. And the abuse was not short term. It was continuous. The abuse yeah. was continuous over a long period of time. So what he would do is he would continue to feed the drug to the girls to keep them under as they were coming to. He would put them back under again. Right. They would have lucid moments. Right where they would remember some things and then they would go back under and then they would remember some things and they would go back under. And so this was like a thing that it could happen over a period of days. Right. For anybody that's ever taken any type of tranquilizer type drugs or sleeping pills, lots of people have had very strange reactions to sedatives. And that's basically what he was giving these little girls and little boys was a sedative and yeah. you know, it would kick in cause they're little, they have littler systems. And then he basically would taper their doses. You know, he'd continue to dose them to keep them compliant for everything that he wanted to do. And he would do things such as take photos in various stages of undress. He would take photos of them being assaulted by him. If he had more than one child with him, he would have them do things with one another. And, you know, you think about this and, one of the things that this was doing for him as well is it was providing almost a means to prevent them from being able to tell a story that sounded well composed because they're medicated. Right. A lot of times they were, it was foggy. They didn't know what had happened. They didn't know if it was real or they dreamed it. It's really tough. A lot of people have commented on the fact that they allowed for him to plead to manslaughter, which I don't think they should have allowed for him to plead to manslaughter unless he was able to properly identify where he put her body. I don't think that should have been an option, but in order for them to have done that, I'm pretty sure that there was a reason why. So I'm pretty sure that that could have been one of the only ways that they were able to get him to admit in a sense where they could actually prosecute. But the reason that, that they allowed it really is because his story of saying that he accidentally, like he didn't mean to murder her, made sense because they knew that he had been drugging these other children. And so his intent wasn't to drug them and kill them. So they're thinking his intent was to drug them and then do what he was going to do with them. They're also making the assumption that this is the only child that he killed. And something tells me that is not the case. Something tells me that is not the case either. And I actually want to look into these scrapbooks, what was in these scrapbooks, because something tells me that those scrapbooks are very important pieces of evidence concerning his actions. Yeah. There would be a story told from one of his cellmates in Australia, when you're a pedophile, they put you in protective custody to keep you safe while you're in prison. Dumbest thing I ever heard. 
while he was in protective custody with another person who was in protective custody, they were the only two criminals in the, in the cell block. And so they struck up a friendship and a conversation. And in that conversation, over time, Guider got a little loose with the lips and he started telling about his offenses and talking and, and he talked about this kid named Sam. This particular inmate wasn't from Australia. He was from England. And so he didn't know about the case. He wasn't familiar with Samantha Knight. And so all he knew her by was Sam. And that's how he referenced her. And in the, the storytelling, he says that while he was assaulting Samantha in his lounge, she came to and recognized him and called him out by his name, Mike. And that he strangled her. And he admitted that to the cellmate. So I don't believe his story that he drugged her and she overdosed because how would she be the only child that he's drugged hundreds, hundreds of maybe hundreds of times that he's done this where this is the only child that, that died. Right. His story is very believable. And how else would he know the details Right. There was more than one conversation. So there was more than one inmate that has come forward and that's listed in the court documentation. There's a codified name basically that it lists them each by so as not to name them. But it does list two separate inmates and the stories that he told them both are fairly identical in what he told them. And you know what I'm going to say about that is that there seems to be a pattern in pedophiles who commit atrocities against children when they can no longer commit those atrocities, they relive those experiences by talking about them. It's one of the aspects that was was very similar in terms of Jesse McFadden. And when he was in prison, he couldn't stop talking about the things that he did. He couldn't stop sharing it with other people. And same thing with Guider. Recently, I watched a interview of a man that was in prison that had killed a pedophile. They had put him in a cell. Um, the post is actually on our Facebook group. It was about a man who had killed a pedophile, and he said that the pedophile started sharing with him what he had done to these little kids, and he happened to have been abused as a child himself. Just go ahead and tell us what happened. All right, I guess he decided to clear his conscience or something, but, you know, he told me what he was in prison for, that he had, you know, was accused of raping a, an 11-year-old girl, and he got 25 to life for it, and... You know, I told him that's enough. I don't want to hear anymore. Um, I first, you know, punched him a couple times. Still wouldn't shut up. Still kept telling me he wanted to explain that he didn't do it, that he was being set up and all this stuff. And I don't know, I just got mad and then hit him and, and then I killed him. He couldn't stop sharing the atrocities that he had committed against children and it ended up getting him killed. What's crazy to me is I sit here thinking about the fact that any prison facility is responsible for ensuring the safety of the inmates, right? Which is funny because we take this really seriously. And yet in our communities, they're even safer than solitary confinement in a prison. That's true. That's very ironic. And why is that? Why do we fight for vulnerable inmates to be kept safe in a prison system who have harmed children with a sentence that they don't get parole from. Why is it such taboo to talk about it or to take action when they're in our communities, around our children? It's because they're invisible. 
They're out of sight, out of mind. Some of them aren't. And even in this story. Most of them are, though. Even in this story, it drives me nuts to hear when somebody knows something and they don't want to say anything. Yeah. Oh, he's my friend. Oh, it's my daughter. Yeah. Oh, it's my... Who cares? Who cares? Yeah. In 2014, after serving his minimum term of 18 years and three months, Michael Guider, at 64 years old, stood at the precipice of freedom. But the state parole authority held him back, citing a need for structured post-release plans, among other factors. Three years later, at 67 years old, in April of 2017, parole was revisited and yet again denied. He was due for another review in April 2018, but the community was restless, fearful of what his release might mean, and rightly so. In February of 2019, a 69-year-old Guider was on the brink of a legal release. Tim, Guider's brother, who had experienced his own run-ins with the law, spoke about his brother's release, calling him the personification of evil and warned that letting him out was a mistake. However, the Attorney General of New South Wales launched an effort to extend his prison sentence. Tess Knight, the mother of Samantha Knight, dubbed him as one of New South Wales' most dangerous criminals, advocating for his indefinite imprisonment. Every day is difficult. Perhaps this day is a little bit more difficult, but every day is difficult. I haven't heard anything today that gives me any uh, reassurance that Gaido would not be dangerous. I want to be clear that this is actually not about punishment. It's not punitive. This is about prevention. That May, the government escalated the case of the Supreme Court, aiming to detain him for another year plus five years of extended supervision. His lawyer countered, arguing that Guider had been a model prisoner, allowed even day leaves under chaplain supervision. By June 4th, the Supreme Court initiated an interim 28-day detention order. Guider was to be assessed by a psychiatrist and psychologist during this period. In a controversial August ruling, Justice Richard Button announced that he decided by September 5th whether Guider deserved extended incarceration. Despite 55 completed therapeutic programs, Guider had refused medication to reduce his sex drive, fearing a conflict with his heart medication. On August 20th, Guider agreed to the administration of antilibinal medication, and though his 12-month continuing detention order is not imposed, the five-year extended supervision order is. And then on September 5th, the judicial hammer fell in a decision that shocked many. Guider, 69, was set free, albeit under heavy restrictions. Despite last-ditch efforts from the Attorney General to contest the decision, he was released two days later. Amber, this is the moment that so many people have fought so hard to prevent. Michael Guider has just made around 150 walk, his first walks as a free man down to a waiting car. He was wearing a grey t-shirt, he has a clipped beard, he's become quite overweight and he was wearing sunglasses as he faced a huge media pack. Media was allowed to wait for him as he walked towards the car. He has now 
made a short drive, just 300 metres round to the back of the prison to his new home. He will be housed at a halfway house around the back of Long Bay Prison. There he will be kept under watch. He will be watched 24-7. He has 56 stringent conditions that he has to abide by over the next five years. He has to check in wherever he goes. He will be watched by guards and he can't go near children or certain suburbs of Sydney. His every move to be monitored by a buddy inside SmartTag. Complicating his release were health concerns, a large untreated groin tumor and ongoing heart medication. For a brief period, he was housed in a halfway house near Long Bay Prison before being moved to an undisclosed location, his malignant potential still a shadow hanging over society. Guider's good luck will be short-lived when three years after his release, during a routine check of Guider's home found evidence of child abuse pornography on his cell phone. He was charged with the violation and sentenced to three more years of imprisonment at the age of 72 years old. This guy doesn't learn. No. Initially, when they were making the decision about extending him for the 12 months, he said that he was willing to take the medication under the stipulation that it wasn't going to be harmful for his health. And so basically, he found a reason as to why maybe he couldn't take it. Right. And loophole. Right. A loophole, basically. And of course, Something tells me that part of the judge's decision had to do with his agreement to agree to take it. And yeah. then they make the decision and then he kind of backtracks on that. Weasels out of it. Right. But this is what I want to say about that is that a large majority of sexual predators, believe it or not, their enticement isn't sexual related. And the reason that that's important is because even placing somebody on this medication is not going to prevent them from offending because one of the largest things that drives them is control. So even if you lower their hormones, if you lower their testosterone, if you lower their libido, it's not going to keep them from wanting to maintain a level of control that they seek, that they crave. I think part of that control is why Guider won't give up the location of the body of Samantha Knight. Absolutely. And it's the same thing that happens with serial killers. So serial killers will release a certain amount of information to keep you coming back for more. And one of the things that commonly happens when serial killers are incarcerated is that when they get to prison, at first they're cocky. You know, this even happened to Ted Bundy. You know, you have kind of this cocky type nature, like you've gotten away with something for so long, you've outsmarted everybody. And then at a certain point, they no longer have control. And so at that point that they lose that sense of control, now they're open to, let me help you solve a case. Let me interview with you and tell you these different things. But they never release everything. Yeah. So you're never going to know 100% of all the people that a serial killer's killed. And I don't believe that you're going to 100% know all of the victims that a predator has. You're just not because they're not going to give you all of that information. Yeah. That means that they give up control. And at that point, what are you going to come back for after that? What control that that's them handing off their control, which is something that they crave and they're just not right. going to do it. Now, I think it's really telling 
that Guider's brother, Tim, comes forward and is like, don't let him out of jail. He's a monster. And in an interview with Tim, he even talks about being Michael Guider's first victim. And when he says that, the reporter says, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? And he stops short of saying that Michael Guider sexually abused him as a kid. But he says, oh, when he was abused, he never told. And so there, therefore, everyone after him was also abused is, a, is because he never said anything. He never rose the alarm right. when he was the first one to be abused. Well, you know, it's never surprising to me when males don't come forward. And the reason for that is because even now, you know, we talk about the topic is taboo. It is everywhere, even more so in the United States. And because of that, and because of how we are with our boys, a lot of boys are even more uncomfortable about coming forward than our girls. Right. So even in this case, you haven't seen any of the guys come forward and talk about their assault that they had with Guider when they were younger. There's two specifically that were identified within the case that were part of his original sentencing. And they're not out in the media advocating and whatnot. And it's tr it's truly sad. Time and time again, you hear of these victims that come forward and some people really are super supportive with them and super understanding and listen and they're open to, to learning about something that they don't know about. But then other people are so ugly and say such horrible things to people who have been victimized. Yeah which is a reason why a lot of these children and a lot of these adults who are victimized have this mindset that's hard for them to shake because of people who do that. Now, I feel like there was a mistake that was made and that mistake was made by the Royal Crown when they made the decision to make his sentence concurrent. For sure. That and, was a mistake. And something tells me that that might have something to do with, with their precedence. And you know, one of the things that one of his survivors spoke with us about is the fact that what he was released with when they finally let him out was like unheard of. The five-year extended supervision order is the maximum that they can do, but he had like upwards of 50-something requirements. 52. Yeah, so 52 requirements, and they were things like the hours that he had to be on the property, certain places he couldn't go to. So he couldn't go places like a movie theater. So in addition to the things that, that we're aware of in the U.S., like a school, being within a school zone, or being within close proximity to a daycare, over there you can't do things where families and kids would most likely be. So you can't even go to, to a movie theater. But one thing that's really disturbing that I think is that in Australia, even though, and they have the same type of system that the U.S. has, where in order for you to be notified as a victim, which I think should be automatic, and you should have to refuse it, you have to elect to be notified as a victim. And so they will. If you want to be notified, they'll notify you. But one thing with sexual predators that they do not do is that they do not have something like a sex offender registry where you get to see where the person is at. Yeah. So what's truly tragic is that you as a survivor of a predator can be walking down the street with your family or move into a home right next door to your predator because you don't know where he lives yeah, or you don't know where she lives. It's undisclosed. That's ridiculous. Yeah. It's I feel scary. like, I honestly feel like we give more rights 
to the predator than to the victims and their survivors. And that is not acceptable. The disappearance of Tess Knight's daughter would forever alter her existence. From the day that Samantha disappeared, Tess searched and advocated for her daughter. It would take the strong but reserved mother 14 years to find some semblance of justice and the arrest of Guider to finally understand what happened to her daughter back in 1986. And the revelation was more than she could bear. She would learn that Guider had made it a point to interact with her at her public job long before he'd be captured and arrested for her daughter's death. Here, her biggest fear would become a reality that the person responsible for her daughter's death would come to her and she would not know it. Guider had met Tess earlier at a mutual acquaintance's home, but Tess would not immediately recall that when she was later approached by Guider as to taunt and stalk her, adding insult to injury. Her fight to keep Guider behind bars would force Tess to break her reserved and quiet demeanor to advocate to keep Guider, a habitual pedophile, behind bars. She knew he would reoffend if released. As Guider's lawyer began petitioning for his release, another advocate joined the fight, and she wasn't alone. I thought he would be in jail forever. I really thought that he would just be locked up forever. It took so much for the six-year-old me to tell police and to, you know, try to deal with that. I really just can't believe that he's free. His victims should never, ever have to deal with maybe crossing paths with him. Mm. That's not fair. They could be walking around with their children, with their grandchildren, and now they're the ones that have got to be watching their back. How is that justice? How is that justice for a victim to have that as a, even a possibility? I would no way in hell would I live in the same state as him. I couldn't do it. I could not have that as a possibility. The thought of that, that is terrifying. It terrifies me. But now that's a real risk. It is. And in five years' time, he can do what he wants. He could live anywhere. So it is a possibility. And that just makes me sick. And that's what you want the justice system to think about. Yeah. I want them to think about the victims beyond what the law can do right now because the laws aren't working. Justice would be a forever sentence for him because we are all sentenced to this life of trying to just get on with it and it's not, it's a hard and it's constant battle to kind of just not be anxious and not fall apart and not be scared and... It's really heartbreaking, the harrowing ordeal you've been through, what you've endured. I'm just really angry. I feel really let down and I feel... I feel scared and I hate that I feel scared, you know, 20 plus years later. It's not fair. It's almost like being abused all over again because you feel vulnerable and you feel ridiculous and you feel embarrassed and you feel just really terrified. I don't like that Guida has this second chance at life when we don't. We're going to stay victims forever and he gets to walk around like he's done nothing wrong. Your story and finding your voice, as you did a couple of years ago, and going public with your campaign has really garnered a lot of support, hasn't it? I mean, your petition that you put out there garnered 180,000 signatures. Yeah, yeah. I think, like... 
the public is with you, the public supports you, do you think you'll continue to campaign for justice? Yeah, I think that the laws need to change and um, I feel like someone's got to push for those laws to be changed. I think people need to keep making noise. Chantelle Daly was a survivor of Guider's monstrous act. At just six years old, she was a victim to Guider's depraved and disgusting attack, being drugged, sexually abused, and photographed. Now in her 30s, Chantelle is no longer a small and helpless little girl. Drawing strength from her trauma, Chantelle has rallied a nation to change laws to keep sex offenders and pedophiles in prison for life. After all, the damage to their victims leaves them traumatized for life, so the sentence is fitting. Chantelle has rallied forces behind Australia's Knight's Law, named in memory of nine-year-old Samantha Knight. Her story and those of other survivors of guiders and other pedophiles has drawn massive crowds to march in solidarity to make laws tougher on sex offenders, especially those that target children. With over 205,000 signatures on change.org and growing, Chantel is closing in on the campaign's goal of 300,000 signatures. And we get the opportunity to interview Chantel, and you guys will be hearing that on the next release next week. And it is a powerful, emotional, very moving interview. So let's talk about the first night's campaign. I think that family, Samantha's mom, Tess, and also Guider Survivor have all kind of rallied behind changing the laws in Australia to make it harder for these pedophiles when they're sentenced to, to get out of prison. The Knight's Law was very particular about keeping a pedophile or a child molester or someone like Guider from being released when he wouldn't disclose the location of the body for Samantha. Her mother could never get closure. And Guider, as disgusting and vile as a human as he was, he would actually take the police from one location to another and be like, oh, I think it was here. I think it was over here. I think it was over here. Tim Guider, Michael Guider's brother, had a theory of where she might be buried. But to this day, they haven't checked that out to see if that's the case. They actually went and dug up that area where they believed that she had been buried, where he said he had taken her out and then put her in a dumpster that I guess was taken away. There was some construction that had occurred at that site within 18 months of when he would have murdered her. And they believe that there is a possibility that when the construction was happening, if her body was indeed there at that point, the area where they believe that Samantha Knight was, was empty. However, they had dogs out there trained to smell human remains and they believe that somebody was buried there and so they believe that it could quite possibly be samantha knight and her parents from what i had read when this took place got some semblance of like her dad had actually made a comment that he felt like she had been there like he felt like there was a piece of her was there and i'm sure that that brought him some level of not necessarily a, a significant sense of peace, but a little bit of the puzzle has been completed yeah. for him, yeah, you yeah. know, but they believe that something could have occurred if even it wasn't him, if he didn't move the body, that something could have occurred during that time frame of the construction where we may never know. So there's going to be the Knight's Law petition for Australia. The link for that is going to be in our show notes. Yes. And 
And I do want to tell everybody how we came upon this too, because I think it's really unique is we have been trying to push for the Knight's Law campaign here in the U.S. that's been inspired by the the tragedy that took place in Henrietta, Oklahoma, where five children lost their lives and by a convicted rapist and registered sex offender. And we wanted to ignite more traction with that petition. And when I was on change.org, I noticed that there was a Night's Law campaign on there. And I'm like, this is strange. So I clicked on it and it was a petition that Chantel had put up. And this is the six-year-old little girl that marched to the police station with her mom. And so I had to reach out to her. (laughs) And I said, hey, there's some similarities in this case because when I read her story, which was very, she's such a strong person. And when I read her story and I read what had occurred and, you know, some of the details surrounding the case, I couldn't get over the similarities between the two cases. And then the fact that, you know, over here in Australia, you've got them doing a petition called Knight's Law that's concerning Samantha Knight, who lost her life to a sexual predator. And then you have five children over here in the U.S. who are attending a school district with the mascot of the Knights, who are also murdered by a sexual predator. So I reached out to her, and I'm so happy that I did. Yeah, it was a very moving story, and and we're lucky to be able to share it and tell it. So it's going to be amazing. On October 30th, 2021, in Middle America, in the small town of Lexington, Oklahoma, Jesse McFadden, a convicted rapist and registered sex offender, was released from prison after serving only 85% of a 20-year sentence. He had begun assaulting children as early as 16 years old when he sexually assaults a sixth grader on a school bus. His violence towards children would culminate in the violent sexual assault of a 16-year-old girl that would send him to prison, but it would be far from his last violent sexual act. While in prison, Jesse would continue to sexually assault other inmates with multiple sexual violations to include rape of another inmate. Other prisoners would describe how he would stalk the female guards and other prison staff, even sexually harassing a woman who was leading a call center program at the prison. Unfortunately, he would be released early and on good behavior, in contrast to the multiple prison infractions. He would also have multiple instances of having and distributing underage pornography and was actively involved in a case that if convicted would send him back to prison for life for sexting and soliciting an underage girl. Unfortunately, loose sex offender laws and a broken registered sex offender program allowed Jesse to leave prison without restrictions. He would fail to register properly as a sex offender. He would marry a woman that had children in the same age range as his previous victims and on May 1st, 2023, Rather than face the music of his past crimes and attend the trial that was certain to return him back to prison, he opted to murder his three stepchildren and his wife and sexually assault two of their friends who happened to be over for a sleepover before murdering them as well. He would avoid being held accountable for his actions by taking his own life after the massacre. The victim's family's loss and pain would manifest itself in the Knight's Law. Named after the school mascot for the Henrietta Independent School District Middle School where all the children Jesse murdered attended at some point. The second Knight's Law, similar to Chantel's Knight's Law, is designed to make laws tougher on sexual offenders, especially those who target children.
Michael Guider used the guise of being a helpful hand, targeting those who needed the most help, single mothers with children. He then took advantage by drugging, molesting, and photographing these children for his own disgusted and perverse pleasures. But that wasn't enough, as his twisted deviance took him to murder an innocent nine-year-old girl, Samantha Knight. Today, Chantel Daly continues to keep Samantha's fight for justice in the spotlight with Australia's Knight's Law, a law memorialized by the loss of Samantha, focused on ensuring sexual predators who commit murder cannot leave prison without disclosing the body of the victim. She continues to advocate with an iron commitment to seeing things through and not taking no for an answer. Similarly, in the United States, the victims, family members, similarly fight for the justice of their loved ones through their version of the Knight's Law, which is ironically focused on stricter laws against pedophiles and child sex predators, memorializing the five students from the Henrietta Knights Middle School who were the victims of pedophile Jesse McFadden. Riley Allen, Michael Mayo, Tiffany Guest, Ivy Webster, and Brittany Brewer. Lives taken too soon by a serial sexual predator and pedophile. This is a fight we need your assistance with. We cannot win this fight alone. Together, we can make it harder for pedophiles and child offenders to access our children where they learn. We can make it harder for them to engage with them where they play. We can make it harder for them to connect with them on social media where they build relationships. We can make it harder for them to console and counsel them where they pray. We can make it harder for them to treat and care for them where they heal. By taking a simple action and signing the Knight's Law, which we have provided a link for in the show notes, an act that takes less than two minutes of your time, you can help push for tougher and stricter laws against child molesters, child predators, and pedophiles. Two minutes isn't even a drop in the bucket of a lifetime of suffering that these children endure when they are molested and sexually abused. Two minutes isn't a drop in the bucket of time filled with the misery and sadness of those families who are forced to bury their children and try to live with the emptiness that never is filled. Two minutes isn't a drop in the bucket of the sense of security, knowing that tougher laws are keeping these monsters from accessing or connecting with your children. You would take two minutes to buckle your child in a seatbelt when putting them in a car. How can you not take two minutes to sign a petition that can prevent them from a head-on collision with a child molester or a pedophile? Take two minutes. Your children deserve it.